Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Scott McVeigh, author of the new book, Surprise Encounter, published by Wild River Books and available at Amazon.com. Surprise Encounters invites readers to engage in McVeigh's inspiring and provocative encounters with explorers, whether artists or scientists who have opened new ways of seeing the world and our place in it. Through wide-ranging stories with renowned figures devoted to transformative change, McVeigh also shows the challenge of placing funds, a sacred challenge, in education, the arts, conservation, and the welfare of animals. McVeigh, who worked with John Lilly on dolphin research and made the first recordings of whale songs, also served as director of the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. His passion for addressing critical issues fit well at the Chautauqua Institution when he became its 16th president, 2001 to 2003. He's a graduate of Phillips Exeter Academy and Princeton University with a degree in English literature. He worked for 11 years at Princeton University as recording secretary and then assistant to the president, Robert F. Goheen. McVeigh has served on the boards of the World Wildlife Fund, the Smithsonian Institution, and on the W. Alton Jones Foundation, among others. He currently serves on a variety of boards including the World Wildlife National Council, Earth Policy Institute, New Jersey Network for Public Television and Radio, Bat Conservation International, Princeton Environmental Institute, and Storm King Art Center. McVeigh's honors include receipt of the Albert Schweitzer Award from the Animal Welfare Institute Princeton Class of 1955 Award, the Joseph Wood Crutch Medal from the Humane Society of the United States, the Lyndon Baines Johnson Award from the White House Commission on Presidential Scholars, the New Jersey Council for the Humanities Citizen of the Year 1998, and an honorary doctorate from Middlebury College, his wife Hella, his two daughters Catherine and Cynthia, and their children Philip, Tess, and Matthew are the centers of his life. We'll talk to Scott McVeigh about all of this and much more, but first, welcome Scott McVeigh. Very happy to be here, sir. Well, Scott, that is a hell of a life you've lived so far, and I I know you have a lot more to do. But, you know, not everybody has a CV that looks anything like that, and uh, it is something. How do you look back on it? Do you say, you know, Pete Seeger always said, you know, my work's done? I mean, do you ever feel it's enough? Well, you just take it one day at a time and try to be helpful where you can. Yeah. So you've had a long history of philanthropy, right? Well, 43 years. I began in May of 1972 at the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, and then four years later took on the leadership of the Geraldine Rockefeller Dodge Foundation, and I was there for nearly a quarter century. So I hire here all the time, and I look at people's resumes, and it shows that they're there for one year or two years. You're a long-termer. When you work, you really stay with it, don't you? Yes. My wife is my muse and example. (laughs) How long have you been married to your wife? We have been married for 57 years and a few months following an intense two-year courtship in Berlin. Wow. Tell me about that. That's interesting. Uh, What was going on in Berlin at the time? Well, I was a special agent with the Counterintelligence Corps, and we we were dealing mainly with people who had fled to Berlin. There was no wall at that time. That happened in 1961. I was there 56, 57, and 58. And there were 1,000 refugees every day coming into Marienfelde. And the, the three or four that were the most interesting, we would talk to. And we had linguists that could detect in the speech where someone had lived in the East. And what was that important? It was important, which is best shown in a play called 
Democracy by Michael Frayn, a British playwright, which was a great hit in London and then in New York, there was a man named Guilleman who was working for the Soviets, and he started working for Willy Brandt. He then became mayor of West Berlin and then eventually chancellor of West Germany, and he was totally undone by this charming confidant. The majority of the people that were head of the West, even if people had urged them to work in the in the West and, and in the businesses and in government and in when you say confident, do you mean lover? No, he was the, the principal advisor. I see. A brilliant fellow and equally charming, but he was working for the Soviets. And the play tells that whole story. So you have this incredible life. But I wanted to ask you about Princeton, only because I'm interested in Princeton because my daughter did her doctorate. There. And in what subject? In political science. <laughs> and now teaches at the College of New Jersey, which, yeah. Is, yeah, which is a great place. So how influential was Princeton in your life? Well, I was with the class of 1955, and our recent president, Shirley Tillman, whom we adore, a dozen years as president, she remarked quietly that we were the lead class in the last century. You wrote a poem about philanthropy, and I'm very interested in that because, you know, I spent a lot of my time raising money around here, and it's always interesting to me to why people feel they should be participating. Well, I've written a lot about philanthropy and given one or two talks, but this is a 10-second summary of the difficulty with philanthropy. A new idea typically does not, at the beginning, fit the guidelines. Yet, that's where strategic possibilities lie. Do it again. Read that poem a second time. (laughs) Okay. A new idea typically does not, at the beginning, fit the guidelines. Yet that's where strategic possibilities lie. What does that mean? What it means is, typically, when someone's approaching a foundation, sometimes they don't hear for quite a while. Sometimes letters are not acknowledged or phone calls returned. And the number one charge of anybody involved in philanthropy is that it's a sacred charge and that you've got to put your heart and soul into it, and you've got to really understand the possibilities of many different ideas in contributing to an engaged human society. And I can tell you that in radio, you have truly a participatory proposition because the listener is actively participating in what they're hearing. If, you're, if you've got a screen with an image, you don't have a chance for the images to be evoked in your own mind. So, uh, look, we've had plenty of issues here with writing to foundations and never hearing a thing from them. But when I worked at Rutgers at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, my director, the late Don Hertzberg, had a tremendous relationship with the people at the Ford Foundation. And he would tell me stories that he would go in there and they would say, okay, Don, we have you penciled in for this much money. Now tell me how you're going to spend it. (laughs) Tell me what you want it for. So you have a a million people out there filling out 50-page applications and never hearing another word about it. That's always disturbed me. And you just sort of touched on it. I wondered if you could, you know, sort of explicate whether you could tell us a little bit more about why foundations don't look for the new ideas you talked about in your poem. Well, when I entered the field, there were 25 foundations with assets of of more than a billion dollars. And the bottom of the barrel then was the Pew Trust. They didn't put out an annual report. They didn't have any guidelines. They never answered any communication. But over time, a head nurse from Charlottesville, Virginia was put in charge. 
The chairman was a Princetonian, and that place took off like a rocket and over a 25-year period became one of the most proactive, informed, and important and impactful foundations around. For example, they got very involved in energy, created a foundation, put a guy named Hal Harvey, a brilliant young Stanford guy in charge, and da-da-da. Okay, one day, after I'd been on the job about one year, some grant makers in New York were invited to the Ford Foundation to hear from David Rogers. David Rogers was heading the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's the first president, and he'd been the dean of the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University when he was 28 years old. Graduated from high school when he was 15. And as he took the microphone, we're down in the basement. There was a deep rug room that we're in, and you could reach down and you could listen to this in Sanskrit or make yourself a martini, whatever. Anyway, David, looking a little bit like Ichabod Crane, he leaned over the microphone and he said, I understand that some folks have been critical of this building as inward-looking, and it costs, I understand, $3 million a year to maintain it. He said, I would like to associate myself with that view. And then uh, he said, my program officers, if they're not out four or five days a week to find out what's really going on out there, how can we know what's happening and how we can make it better? Here's the leader of the second biggest foundation. He was also an incredible artist in wood. Anyway, those two stories suggest some of the challenges. Yeah, but, you know, uh, not to give you a hard time because that's the last thing I want to do, but <laughs> but these guys, you know, everybody says things like that. I want my people out there discovering the new stuff, what really matters. But there are established institutions that do tend to come to the major uh, foundations and get funded as opposed to some of what might be the most innovative of all. And I loved your poem, but maybe you could speak to that. Is that a failure of the big foundations? Well, actually, I was invited to address the newly appointed trustees of the Doris Duke Foundation, and I took the occasion to examine the largest foundations and what they're doing. And you sometimes think from the outside that, you know, a big ship can't turn easily and so on. I found that uh, the field had improved a lot, that they were more responsive, they were listening better, and they were actually working on some really critical issues in terms of the future of, of humanity on this dear planet. So I came out and looking at the big foundations, some are doing terrific stuff like Carnegie and Gates and, and, and others. But I do want to share with you a story or two on, about radio. Great, uh, now this gets us to your book and your very good book, which is Surprise Encounters. And you've just finished it and it's out there now. And it's filled with wonderful stories. But you have a couple on radio. Well, I thought because this is your medium and, and you're so renowned in this northeast zone and corridor. Renowned is an interesting word. There might be another one. <laughs> Maybe esteemed. renowned. How about esteemed? Distinguished? Yeah. Penetrating? Okay, just very quickly. And because I know that you heard Gene Shepard, too. All right. I love Gene Shepard. Okay. Now, here, here's a young man from the south side of Chicago. A lot of good stories. He was a genius, and, of course. He and, was a true genius. Yeah. And, and what are we but our stories? Okay. He was a colorful personality on WR Radio, 50,000 watts out of New York, and an amazing storyteller. And by the way, we played it here on WAMC, too, Gene Shepard, in the early days before... I took over in 1979, but in the early days, we played Shepherd here. Mm -hmm. 
Well, he had a huge following in the greater New York area and held forth with yarn after yarn every weeknight and Saturday mornings. Unbelievable. Now, through a staff sergeant in Berlin, I learned of and learned to love the dazzling Danish writer and supreme storyteller Karen von Blixen, pen name Isaac Dennison, and her book Seven Gothic Tales, 1934, was a spellbinder for me. Out of Africa is her better-known work, mainly through the movie starring Meryl Streep and Robert Redford, and it's about the years Dennison ran a large coffee plantation in Kenya. So as a way of saying thanks to Shep for stories of his Chicago boyhood and many others in his book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, and his publication, The America of George Aid, and for reading of the poetry of Robert Service in the early 1960s, I mailed him a copy of Seven Gothic Tales, suggesting he start in the middle with the fourth story, The Dreamers. The following Saturday, Helen and I were driving with our young daughters in Bucks County, and I turn on Shepard at 10.15. He opened with, okay, sports fans, don't touch that dial. And then he proceeded to read aloud the first part of The Dreamers, a compelling story of a man pursuing a woman across Europe, following one whiff of a clue after another, told by a man in a dow, D-H-O-W, in the Indian Ocean a hundred years later, thereby removed in both space and time, contributing to the surreal aspect of the story. Without commercial interruption, Shepard read until 10.43, leaving us breathless and spellbound. He said that seven Gothic tales had just come into his possession. He regularly warned his radio audience that he did not acknowledge communications from them. He said further that he gave the book to the best writer he knew, who promptly walked down the hall and dropped his typewriter down the elevator shaft. That's great. No, that, that's really great. I never experienced anybody on radio like Shepard. You know, he had his moments. He would disappear. Remember his disappearing acts? He would just leave, and nobody would know where he is. And the New York Post used to write, when it was a good paper, used to write, where's Shep? <laughs> Headlines, and then he would, he would come back. But what he could do better than anybody I knew is to take five different seemingly independent stories tell them in the same time period, and in the last five minutes, bring them all together. It was unbelievable. I mean, his talent was, was extraordinary. I remember once about tracing the elephant graveyard in New York City in the Bronx, which it turned out to be. It was, the guy was incredible. Yeah, and so I'm glad. I'm so happy you mentioned him in, in the book. What conclusion do you draw about Shepard? Well, for example, one story he told about... Uh, he said he was playing ball and it was getting late and getting dark and he's trying to make his way home and his, he always has his mother in his mind in this rump-sprung bathrobe working at the sink and it's late and he has one slim dime and he stops at this phone booth and he dials his mother to say he's going to be late and the line is busy. He said, well, she, nobody ever calls. What's this? And then he sees on the wall, Maria, 749-83. Two, one. He dials his mother again, line busy, and he begins to think about Maria, and he begins to fantasize a little bit about Maria, and he has just the one dime, but he puts it in, and he dials Maria's number, and she picks up and says, hello? He says, uh, you probably don't remember me. She says, what do you want? <laughs> anyway, so he could tell a story, and then he would also describe on his record, there's a 
all these people walking in a parade, and it's, this is the Hall of Humanity, and, and, and here comes Eric the Red. Oh, my God, my God, he's bald. And then here comes Lady Godiva. Here she is. Here comes Lady Godiva. Oh, my, oh she's wearing a bodysuit. You know, not and on. So this guy could hold you like that. He was unbelievable. And he came to Princeton every year. The student radio station invited him for 30 years. He came, and the place was packed, our Alexander Hall. Really? Yeah. Well, he was something. You had another radio story. Well, yes. I had published an article in Natural History called, Can Leviathan Long Endure So Wide a Chase and So Remorseless a Havoc? And this is a line from Herman Melville's Moby sure. Dick, which is where my interest in whales began. And I believe pr- had a great deal to do with having written it in the Berkshires. Yeah, I'm I, pretty I think sure so. We were right. just at Arrowhead last summer. Yeah, yeah. Again. <laughs> well, that's my home. I love that place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So Arthur Godfrey saw this piece, and he asked me to come in and, and do a program. I was So what was in the piece again? It was bringing up to date the whale story. I had published an article in Scientific American in 1966 was the baseline for whale conservation for the next nine years. And I served on the U.S. Delegation International Whaling Commission for many years, and I was specifically charged with working with the Russians and the Japanese, and that's all. I want to tell our audience that, you know, Mel Brooks may have been the 2,000-year-old man, but you've been there. You're a quick second to having been almost everywhere. (laughs) In any event, Arthur Godfrey invited me to go on his radio program, and my mother and hundreds of thousands of others felt that Godfrey had a touch on radio that connected intimately with the individual listener at home. After doing the Lipton flow-through commercial, uh, Mr. Godfrey asked me, what is an endangered species? In looking about the studio with a male vocalist, a female vocalist, and a nine-piece band, I replied that he was an endangered species. Of course, as a founder of the World Wildlife Fund, he knew the answer to the question, but he laughed. Meaning that Arthur Godfrey, with his entourage, that that kind of a radio show wasn't going to last that much longer. Yeah, I see no band here. Uh, I right. see no male vocalist. I see no female vocalist. I see a man playing all these roles with a sidekick who's well, equally sharp. But he fired everybody. On our wall, on the second floor of our home in Great Barrington, is a picture of a woman, and everybody wants to know who she is. And the Chartok twins, both in their Boy Scout uniforms, are sitting there giving her a check. And it was Marion Marlowe. Do you remember that name at all? She was the girl singer. Julius LaRosa was the boy singer. <laughs> and he kept firing them both and hiring them back. So he was a real interesting character. But go ahead. Well, we talked about the plight of the spinner dolphin in the Pacific. Five million had been killed. You and in, Arthur. Arthur talking. Godfrey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Five million had been killed in tuna nets in the 1960s without any awareness by the general public. Mm-hmm. The spinner dolphin, it spins actually on its axis. It's not end over end. And there, there were up to 2,000 of them from horizon to horizon. And I had actually done an op-ed piece in the New York Times on that topic. We also talked about the great whales who are continuing to be decimated by whaling fleets in the Antarctic and the North Pacific. Time flew, and at the end of the hour, I was heading for the door to get back to work. But Mr. Godfrey said he usually taped three hours of radio at a time, and the third hour was going to come up on February 14th, Valentine's Day. He asked me what I knew about the courtship and mating of whales. I said very little, but perhaps enough to go for an hour. When the third session was taped, I was getting up to leave, 
and he invited me into his office. He was relaxed, friendly, and conversational. He had a big checkbook with sheets of checks like my father, and he wrote me a check for $225, $75 for each hour, a lot of money in those days. Maybe I never should have cashed it, but rather framed it as a memento. A couple of weeks later, I received in the mail three audio tapes of the program sent by a retired gentleman, an audio guy, who said that folks rarely had any record of radio interviews, and he did this as a voluntary service. If I wish to send him 20 bucks, fine. If not, please keep the tapes. I sent a check pronto. Oh, that's great. That's great. When I think of what we have now, we're... This interview will be online at WAMC.org, and anybody can go there and listen to it. We're talking to Scott McVeigh, whose new book is Surprise Encounter. It's got lots of stories in it. So what's the format of the book, Scott? Well, these are surprise encounters with artists and scientists, whales, and other living things. So for example, under scientists, there are 37 scientists in this book. And I thought of them each as pioneers. But when the whole thing was finally pulled together, I realized that almost all of these 37 scientists had actually created the field, like E.O. Wilson and Ants. Their others were doing minor elaborations on that field, like in Bats, it's Merlin Tuttle. He's taken pictures of over 1,300 uh, bat species, and they constitute more than one-fourth of the entire mammalian kingdom. It's only, you know, 5,700 mammals. Over one-third are bats that are critical for pollination and pest control. What made you interested in bats? Well, whales may be interested in bats because it turns out that in 1939, a gentleman at Harvard who was a graduate student uh, first detected sonar in the bat. And mm. this is a big discovery because... His name is Donald Griffin, later professor at Rockefeller University. And this is a big deal because with us, um, echolocation is a, a non-existent or almost latent sense. So to discover a sense beyond our five senses is a big deal. And, Help me and with echolocation. Echolocation is when, if, for example, in the bottlenose dolphin, which was discovered 10 years later by someone in his 20s who didn't live past his 30th birthday in Florida, Echolocation has to do with, there's a double air sac system in the front of the bottlenose dolphin, and the dolphin can, with great precision, a greater precision than any violinist, can move air across a membrane and can create a cone of clicks, for example, and then bring it down close. For example, one time I took a, a dime and just dropped it in a tank, and a dolphin heard the sound of it striking the surface, and then the dolphin wheeled around and came in on it, and it started out on a click rate, and then it goes up to like a creaking door. It's up to over 300, 350 repetitions per second so that the cone of sound comes down like a laser beam, and it's reading on the coin, in God we trust, you see. And then the head, at the very last moment, the head moves slightly across that thing to get an even sharper definition. And so that's how echolocation Works. And bats have it too. And bats have it too. But for example, suppose they're moving in on a moth. The moth has an infinitesimal brain. However, because they've been in this gig for a long, long time, bats at the last nanosecond fold their wings and drop like a rock. Half the time they get away, half the time they're caught. But it's the same 
it's the same dance that a, a sperm whale with the largest brain on Earth, we have a three-pounder upstairs, the sperm whale has an 18 to 20-pound brain, and it will sometimes go down for a whole hour at a depth of a mile, and it will go for squid. That's 99% of their diet. But they've been at this so long that the sperm whale hardly even does any clicks down there. They're just kind of aware of one another's presence, and they need a lot of squid every day to keep up the bulk of that body. So it's a very interesting trait. And so you have this story in the book. Well, yeah, there's 33 whale stories here. Which is your favorite whale story? Okay. My favorite is how can a dolphin save a human? But one that's equally brief that leads into it is the question of something we call ultimate fidelity. And I was working in the laboratory with John C. Lilly for a couple of years, the very precocious dolphin, Elvar. We worked six days a week, morning and afternoon. But on the weekends, I had located nine different individuals who kept dolphins. And seven were women, two were men. The men had three or four dolphins. Women tend to focus on a single animal, be it a horse or a dog or a cat or a dolphin. And these people, they did not know one another, but I asked them to keep detailed records. So... I said, no, no detail is too small. And this one woman had a dream set up in Fort Myers where there was a tidal pool and there were fish actually in there. And once you train a dolphin to eat freshly cut dead fish, they don't go back. And in fact, it takes two or three weeks of an expert working with them to get them to eat live fish again. So this woman left. And when she was around, he would take food from others. But the dolphin stopped eating. And she came back after four days. Now, the danger is not that they'll starve to death. What happens is dehydration. So they need the water in the fish, the fresh-cut dead fish. But the dolphin would, would not take. The dolphin was prepared to check out because of this ultimate fidelity. I mean, the, the women are very, very good, but they're not, you know, 24-7 on it. Let's just get one thing straight. The fidelity in this case is to the woman. Yes. Okay. Yes. Not to the fish. That's right. Yeah. So she comes back after four days, and the dolphin grabs a fish, a wriggling fish, in his teeth and presents it to her, as if to say, all is forgiven. She gets in. She normally swam with him for an hour or two a day, but she was kept in that tidal pool for five or six hours. Because? Because the dolphin would not let her out. She thought it might leave again. And how does the dolphin prevent a person from not getting out? Well, it just keeps getting between you and, and the side of the pool. just keeps her always in the middle of the pool. Amazing. But that's not science. It's an interesting event. You've got science when something happens a second time. So the damnedest thing happened. The other best setup was on the East Coast, north of Miami. And there's another woman again, and she was gone for four days. She happened to go to New York, same story, a little shopping spree or whatever. And this same dolphin would not eat from anybody else and was prepared, if you will, to die of a broken heart. I mean, in all of Shakespeare, there's only one character who dies of a broken heart. It's Enobarbus and Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, now, Enobarbus had remarked on Cleopatra at one point, age cannot wither her nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. And the third stanza I can't do on the air. It's, <laughs> I can hardly do it in person, but it has something to do with riggish. Anyway, but the point is, this woman comes back on the fourth day, and this dolphin grabs a wriggling fish and presents it 
to her upon her return, and she, too, is kept for four or five hours in the pool. He will not let her out. So So that is science. That's science. You've got two events. Interesting. (laughs) We're talking to Scott McVeigh. His book is Surprise Encounters, published by Wild River Books and available at Amazon.com. Okay. Now, you have done this brilliant work on the bats and on the whales and on the dolphins. Why, sir, them as opposed to the poor, starving people on the streets who are homeless? Why focus attention on animals and conservation and not on our basic needs in this society? Well, they're all tied up. We were actually actually involved with a question of, at the Dodge Foundation, extraordinary woman named Diane Arbor. She created the first shelter in New Jersey, and today there's hundreds, thousands of shelters for women who are abused, badly abused, and they're often victimized a second time when the police arrive and so on and so forth. Well, in working on this issue and also on, we were the lead foundation in the country on the welfare of animals, and it turned out we we're very curious why people abuse dogs and cats. And, and you get down to the bottom of it, and it turns out this is often somebody who was abused themselves as a boy. And an extraordinary piece of work by a guy named Stephen Keller at Yale and a guy named Alan Felt, who's out in Kansas, they actually pinned this down by interviewing people and mapping this out. But we found out there was a connection all the way around with abuse of children, abuse of women, and abuse of animals. And we pulled together a conference of people on this, and I wrote a chapter in that book. But all this is tied together. I mean, who was it that said, you know, if heaven went by merit instead of something else, your dog would get in and you'd be kept out, you know. So this whole matter of paying attention, say, to bats or whales or any creature within the entire biosphere, it's all tied together. And that's why, you know, even the events of this week, the last two weeks in in, in Paris, the climate decision is so critical because bats can and many other species operate within a very narrow band in terms of temperature. And that's why this was so important what happened there. And I'm hoping very much it will stick. So this book is just filled with wonderful stories. Of course, you know, we here at WAMC have a hero in Arlo Guthrie. And I've interviewed him many times recently on the stage of the Mahewi Theater in Great Barrington. So it's 50 years since Alice's Restaurant. And you know a little bit about this from your Chautauqua experience. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> well, well, Helen and I just saw Arlo Guthrie at McCarter Theater in Princeton uh, within a fortnight. and um, He's one hard worker. He gets around. He, he's unbelievable. And as he explained, he says, it's a three-year celebration of the 50th anniversary of Alice's Restaurant. And he said, if I'd known I was going to be singing this so often, he said, I would, I would certainly have shortened the whole thing up because I'd be singing it so often. But what happened when I taken the helm at Chautauqua, Arlo Guthrie was the first performer of the first day of the first summer at Chautauqua. And he, had this, he has this drawl, this way of speaking, and it was actually quite remarkable in that he began to, you began to feel he's in some kind of a cabin up in the North Country, and right beside that cabin, he, he says a moose uh, came down, and, and the moose is kind of shuffling back and forth with these spindly legs, and, and you begin to think, by God, there's a moose on the stage. I mean, a real artist can evoke that, you know? And we were just with a dear friend, Patricia Goodrich, and she's written a poem that's called How the Moose Came to Be. <laughs> 
And on the cover of this particular book of poetry is a moose in purple that she has, has drawn. And I mean, I don't think anybody can touch a poem about a moose because it's been, it's been finally done by her. And of course, Arlo wrote a wonderful book about a moose, children's moose, and has been talking about, you know, the moose for a long time. That's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Hunter High School. Now, you know, you have a real interest, and you have as a foundation executive and others, of really bright people. And Hunter High, when I was growing up on the west side of Manhattan, I have to tell you, kids who went to Hunter High were very bright. It was all girls then. And somehow I once filled out an application online for something, and they got it wrong, and they put me down as a graduate of Hunter High School, which would have been impossible since it was all girls, you know, at the time. I've tried to what be, a nice idea. Though. I've tried to be in touch with them for years, but they don't listen because I went to Hunter College. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your fascination with bright young people and why. Well, one day I get this call. It was in 1976 from a woman from Dobbs Ferry, New York. And she said, not since Da Vinci. I said, I asked, what? And she said, not since Da Vinci has there been a one such as our own son. I said, how so? And she said that she and her husband had a child of immense gifts, although he's only six months old. And could I come by for a visit? I suggest we stay in touch. Since she was somehow aware of my longstanding interest in bright kids, the mother called periodically every year or half year to report on Marnin's growing precocity. Finally, at about the five-year mark in 1981, she said she was using Omar Khayyam Moore's talking typewriter and taking a course at Columbia and another at MIT. She repeated her plea, when are you coming for a visit? I said, well, how about this Sunday? Does that work for you? Yes, what time? How about noon? We were returning from Harvard where our daughter Cynthia was studying and could drive through Dobbs Ferry about that time. The mother had mentioned that both she and her husband had curtailed their professional lives by half so that each of them could give 40 hours a week to their son. They had turned their living room into a floor-to-ceiling library with all kinds of prompts and tools for learning. At noon, we tapped on the door. The woman greeted us and ushered us into her home. Hella, who by then had been teaching mathematics for over two decades, greeted the little curly-headed fellow with a smiling, How are you? I'm perfect, he said. That's great. Well, it was downhill from there. He sat in the middle of the living room. He interrupted our conversation minute by minute. He pounded on O.K. OK Moore's talking typewriter for a minute or two and then abandoned it. The way the device works is that if you happen to hit, say, three letters such as C-A-T, in sequence, the word cat appears on a screen and... A reassuring voice says, cat. The keys are color-coded so that the toddler learns to touch type as he learns to read and write. Hella then engaged him in number games, since in arithmetic and mathematics, there's a general trajectory or experience of learning. After an hour there, we politely took our leave. I asked Hella how far along the boy was in math. She said, about the second grade. Three or four years later, the Dodge Foundation put a little money, $12,500, behind a course for unusually precocious kids in Metuchen Public Schools that was taught by Lisa Garrison, who later served as a program officer at the foundation. The course had eight or ten children from the area and one from out of state, our Westchester lad. 
Lisa reported that working with these inquiring kids was a thrill, with one exception. Hmm. This spoiled kid, ever craving attention, constantly disrupted the class with his acting out and attention-getting antics. We're still waiting for his name to turn up in the paper. All of us who have watched Brilliant Kids, I know that my brother, my twin brother, was once asked if he would hire somebody who was a major giver's kid or grandchild and said, he's so bright, he's so bright. And my brother said, to the consternation of the woman, they're all bright. <laughs> <laughs> they're all bright. So, so what is your favorite story in the book? Well, for a book reading at Princeton recently, I was asked to think about my eight or 10 favorites and uh, I found 117. Yeah. But I can share with you one that's it's a, it's like a, if you're playing pool, bank off the side into this one. This is called God is on our side. With an event in life, it usually happens only once and it's gone. What I describe here occurred in eight successive Junes during the administration of Ronald Reagan on the South Lawn of the White House. Pretty much word for word. It was the greeting of the President of the United States to 141 presidential scholars, two from every state, a boy and a girl, 20 in the arts, 15 at large, six from overseas, and their families. When President Reagan stepped out of the White House, he strode athletically across the lawn to the microphone, beaming radiantly. After welcoming the presidential scholars and their families warmly, the president said he felt a little embarrassed by the scholars and their accomplishments since he himself had not been a very good student. In fact, he said, when, I receive, when he received recently an honorary degree from his alma mater, Eureka College, he quipped, I thought the first one was honorary. In 1986, we were in China with 18 of the initial Dodge Foundation Chinese language teachers who, thanks to the good efforts of Professor Timothy Light of Ohio State University, gathered to learn for a month at the Beijing Language University. When the teachers' studies were concluded, they traveled a bit and we with them. When in Shanghai, Helen and I traveled to meet with the president of Fudan University, Xu Xie, who had a PhD in particle physics with a focus on semiconductors from MIT. She was a highly regarded, diminutive woman who was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China in charge of education for the country and foreign educational exchange programs. She helped revive the physics culture in, in, in China and still used a typewriter. A friend of ours got her a computer later. She said that President Reagan had been in China recently and he addressed the leadership of the country in his remarks, he said, quote, We are so successful in America because God is on our side. End quote. Dr. Xi said she excised that sentence from the president's speech, quote, for your sake and for our sake, end quote, when it was transmitted across China. I mentioned what President Reagan said annually to the presidential scholars. She said he told the same story here. We did not know what to make of it. Wonderful. What use, Scott McVeigh, do you have for politicians? I mean, here's a Ronald Reagan story. Obviously, you've been telling the story using the same speechwriters. I want to know your impression of what motivates our politicians. We see people like the Speaker of the New York State Assembly going to jail or potentially going to jail pending an appeal. We see the head of the state Senate going to jail. We see all of this sort of miscreant-like behavior you're an esteemed scholar and an esteemed thinker. What is it about our political class in this country 
that creates this kind of avarice that is so unattractive? Well, in the book here, uh, I have a uh, vignette on Tom Kane of uh, New Jersey. Of New Jersey, and he was governor for eight years, and he's a phenomenal human being, a man of great integrity, breadth, grace, and across a span of things. And I, the story that I wrote up here, the editor said, well, did you know him? Actually, I worked with him or a key member of his cabinet on 19 different projects. And, uh, and where were you at the time? What were you doing? Well, I was, I was ex- the founding executive director of the Geraldine Rockefeller Dodge Foundation. Sure. I mean, he'd, he'd asked me to create a partnership with the CEOs in the state, and I recruited the first 18, and then more joined. But Tom Kane, his story is so extraordinary in that as a boy, his two older brothers were A students and athletes, and they did interesting things, and he was not a good student. He stuttered badly, and his skin wasn't, and he, he walks like this, and he's not an athlete. And his father was a congressman, and he was always shuttled back and forth between New Jersey and here. But how did he overcome all this? Well, number one, he went to a camp up in New England, and before you know it, he became an assistant counselor, then an associate counselor, and then eventually a counselor himself, and he's working with kids, and he becomes a teacher. And he's teaching for three years, and his father decides to run for the Senate. And his father had kind of committed to a nearby town, just he couldn't go. He said, Tom, would you please go over? He says, as long as you remember, I, 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 I don't speak. So Tom gets over there, and there's 26 people in the room, and somebody says, would you mind saying a few words? Well, he forgot himself for a moment, and he spoke, and people applauded like this. And it never stopped, because people can identify. He's the opposite of Donald Trump. People can identify with somebody who's overcome a lot. And he told me that he would never go, he would never go to an event that he didn't stay to the end because he's receiving things orally. He says he's, he's still a bad reader. But he went on, you know, to chair the 9-11 Commission. He went on to chair the Carnegie Corporation. He went on to chair the Robert Wood Johnson. And after he's worried at the end of his governorship, he says, Scott, what am I going to do? I said, something's likely to turn up. Yeah. And it turns out the woman who was chairman of the board of Drew University said, do you think he might be interested? I said, well, why not ask him? And he became president of Drew University and 15 years became as fine a fundraiser as you, sir. But I want to ask you something, Scott McVeigh, and that is he's an example of a good politician. What about all the ones that went astray? I worked, for example, for a wonderful congressman from New Jersey who I loved and who represented Princeton, Frank Thompson, Jr. And unfortunately, he was abscammed. But he was the best man I have ever known in my whole life. I loved him. And something takes over with some of these guys. Well, again, it's a matter of term limits. It's a matter of, I mean, Sheldon Silver, 40 years in the job. And he fit right into the So is that create and that creates an arrogance in individuals? No question about it. Arrogance is is a terrible thing within the world of philanthropy. People begin to think it's their money. Yeah, they yeah, forget yeah, yeah, that yeah. it's a sacred trust and they stop listening and they're talking all the time. I always had four program officers and others, but I said, There's no meeting that's gonna take place in this office. You're gonna be out there picking up on what's going on and all the factors you can. But how do you get people to stop being that way, to stop and, being arrogant? And I, and I, well, I don't know. In, in my case, uh, I so admired, I so admired the people 
that we're working on environmental issues or welfare of animal issues or in education. We had 21% of our money going in education. We created this, this Chinese language initiative nationwide, and there was not one school where it was well taught when we started in 1983. And today there's over 2,000 schools nationwide where Mandarin is taught every day, and they get the four tones right. When our, our main guide on this is Professor T.T. Chen at Princeton, he taught there for 25 years, and his course is one of the top-rated four courses for 25 years. And when he came to China with our with our teachers at Beijing Language University, everybody there said, we haven't got anyone that teaches like Professor Chen. And, and the first time he met with some of our teachers, he said, you know, you've got to get those four tones right, or it's eternal perdition. That's funny. Anyway, and I, I find that even though Greed and avarice seem to be motivating factors in our society. I have worked with hundreds and thousands of people that are dedicated to the arts and they're basic explorers and scientists and people in these other fields, and they are powered entirely by their own deep desire to make contributions to our society through this avenue of which they're most deeply engaged. That's very well put, but it doesn't give me the answer, the eternal question which I'm asking these days, which is you get a state legislature, you get them, your, your answer was they've been there too long, but it doesn't it come down to a Freudian concept of character, who we are. My bet is that if you went back and you looked at Scott McVeigh as a very young child, you would find the same kind of principled, decent instincts that you obviously represent today. So what is it? that creates malformed character? Well, I think people are affected by what's around them. I mean, for example, with regard to guns in this society, the NRA is calling the shots. And so many ideas have been thrown out during this, this silly season of politics with regard to, and here we have these events occurring, but there's a link, for example, between what we see on television and in the movies and the violence and the way people act out in their everyday lives. And it has a tremendous effect on children. So that it seems as though in our culture, I mean, you compare us to the Canadians. So Canadians, mm. Canadians, for example, were 90%, you know, live within 10 miles of the border and their doors are unlocked. There's a low gun culture. And uh, myself, I just hear the word Canadian and my heart skips a beat because I work with the National Film Board of Canada in making a film of my second Arctic expedition to film the bowhead whale. We had 83 sightings of whales over a two or three week period. And and the guy behind it, the filmmaker, was Bill Mason. Well, he'd done a trilogy on wolves. He lived with them for five weeks. That's how you learn about wolves. And then he made a trilogy on whitewater canoeing. And that was three films. I mean, nobody can touch this after Mason did it. And uh, they call him the Arctic Elf. We're up there in the Arctic, and he built an igloo. And the Inuit saw him, never seen anything like it, you know. And he's living, he says, you put one candle in here, and it's just fine. He's sleeping fine, you know. And he, he just, So is there such a thing, Scott McVeigh, as national character? In other words, we all learned about it in college, and then it was a discredited concept. But you say, hey, the Canadians up there, they really know what they're doing. They're good people. They they have a low gun culture. Somebody had to teach them that. And in our case, we have a high gun culture. And I think it's theoretically two guns for every American, uh, you know, that are out there. What is it about a Donald Trump, for example, that will attract so many people to this kind of 
you know, Neanderthal messaging that the guy gives in this country, which would not go well in another country? Well, that's a great question. But do you believe, when I in, do you about, believe in national character? I do. And let me, let me go to the soul of it, if I may. In 1830, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a book called Democracy. Democracy in America, right. And when I left Chautauqua, I was invited to come back the next year. We had a week on voluntarism. Indeed. And to me, my the favorite story in de Tocqueville, he says, you know, in Paris, here we are at a cafe, we're drinking wine, and we're railing at the injustices and inequities of our society, and, and da, 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 and then we go home. He said, in America, what happens is they form a committee. And you know, before long, the committee becomes what we call today a not-for-profit organization of, well, you've got more than two million in this country. They're run by volunteers. They may have some staffers and so on. So what I did in that talk on the voluntary character of this nation, I thought that was the absolute soul of the country. And then, actually, I illustrated with 10 people I had brought to Chautauqua in the prior years as exemplars of this business of giving of your time to things you really care about. Well, I've always loved Tocqueville, too. I just want to take a minute or two to talk about your children. I would have to say, first of all, we just had our 60th college reunion, and uh, I have classmates who are sometimes quite friendly and responsive, but most of them have made up their mind on every topic to the point that the brain seems to come down like this so that not only have they made up their mind on every single topic down to the deepest minutiae so that they, once they made up their mind on something but their outward appearance is that they're receiving and they're eager to hear what it is or maybe but a new idea does not slip in now i'm just putting that to a side because you brought that later discussion but on the two daughters well our oldest daughter Catherine is a chair of community board number one in New York City. She was an engineer, a civil engineer at Princeton in geology and water, and published her thesis on that, and then went to work for an Italian company. And at the age of 24, she was in charge of putting in the foundation of the second biggest power plant in Israel, in Ashkelon, 125 men working for her. But she's been deeply involved in the rebuilding of Lower Manhattan as a member of community board number one and then becoming vice chair for seven years. And now she's in her second three-year term as chair of community board number one, Lower Manhattan. And she also worked for New York PERG, Public Interest Research Group, for 10 years and wrote a book, Getting the Lead Out. And in spite of the destruction, she's only one block from the World Trade Center, she has worked very hard as a volunteer for all these years and is, to our delight, the only person in Anthony De Palma's book, City of Dust. He covered illness, arrogance, and 9-11. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and uh, he devotes chapter 8 of that book, which came out a few years ago, 24 pages to our daughter Catherine's role. And I, I said to Catherine, I said, this is really astonishing. And she said, well, who, would, who could possibly care or be interested? She said. Anyway, she's modest. Well, she's practical, like her mother. And, and the second daughter? The second daughter, Cynthia, she just had a holiday bash. And she, on her own hook, bought some 83 acres uh, south of here in Ulster Park and then brought in a big barn eventually. And it's full of her art and her work. And she wrote her senior thesis at Harvard on 
the contact calls of two species of capuchin monkeys, Cebus albifrons and Cebus apella, she was there for 11 weeks, two summers in a row, and she bought all the food for the 12 or 13 biologists down there. And then where's she, the down there? Where is that again? It's in Amazonian Peru. Okay. And uh, you go to Cusco, which is 11,000-something, and, and then you go over two ridges of mountains, and then you go on a river. And this is a site that John Turborg, the biologist, he was a Harvard guy, and he was at Princeton and then at Duke. It was his tract where people came to work, and there's been two million acres of land saved down there because of the presence of a, a world-class uh, biologist. But anyway, she had worked on the contact calls. These monkeys had, the pecking order had been identified a prior year by a, a very bright Harvard graduate student. And so, for example, she's recording, and then she did the spectrographic analysis of this, and E.O. Wilson and two other professors gave a summer at Harvard on this. He said, you know, I haven't had a doctoral. Sounds like two chips off the old blocks. Well, uh, well I uh, yes. have to say, my wife's a mathematician and a master teacher, and uh, I can't tell you her contributions to their So you didn't culture. spend 40 hours a, a day on teaching your kids to be geniuses. They just they're, they're not. Well, they're not. They're not in that zone, but they they are hardworking. They're organized, and I really believe they're contributors. Well, I want to congratulate you. We are out of time. Uh, we've been in conversation today with Scott McVeigh, author of new book Surprise Encounters. We've been in conversation today again with this magnificent human being who has been all over the place and who's taught us a lot. Thank you so much, Scott McVeigh. Well, thank you. been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.